0: 1865 marked the official end to slavery in the United States. The 13th Amendment ratified after the end of the Civil War meant that more than 3 million enslaved blacks were free and that involuntary servitude shall not exist in our country. The idea, in addition to padding the armed services with more soldiers, was that of the American dream, an equal opportunity to generate the same kind of wealth as white counterparts. One starting point for the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, as written in the Declaration of Independence, was payback for all of that free labor or reparations, a concept that the United States to this day struggles to conceptualize. The topic is a hotbed of emotion, that, from the root, which involves critical race theory and the true history of our nation. Our guest today has this discussion and more on race relations with us. Welcome to And Another Thing. I'm Derek Kennedy.
1: And I'm Maya Schwader. On Mondays, we have one in-depth conversation with a single guest about the challenges that have shaped them. Today's guest is Amilkar Shabazz, a longtime activist and professor of history and Africana studies at UMass Amherst. During our discussion, Professor Shabazz traced his history of activism and the ways in which it mirrors much of the history of black movements for justice in the U.S. He told us that while he wasn't born an activist, as he became involved in the movement in college, he realized that his government name would not live up to who he was becoming. Shabazz eventually drew inspiration to change his name from both reading about the freedom struggles in West Africa, as well as from Malcolm X.
2: My uh, birth name of Eric Frank given to me by my mother and father, who both sides come out of Louisiana and are what we would call Creole, Afro-Creole Louisiana people. When I got off to college, I was swept up in the winds of revolutionary change from the, the freedom struggle in South Africa. My generation was like, yeah, that's we're fighting out of the same system, out of the same racist trick bag. I I, I get it. And so I had this coming of age that led me in a direction similar to Malcolm X, similar to others, of saying, you know what, my birth name, that given name, that name of Eric that my mother just saw in a movie, you know, that's all fine and good, but I want something culturally meaningful. So the Shabazz was influenced by my learning about Malcolm X. And the milk car comes from the leader of the independence movement in Cape Verde and guinea Bissau. So I'm reading these works in the late 70s, and it so impacted my outlook. I said, okay, Amilcar will be the first name, and Shabazz will be the last name.
1: I'd love to know a little bit more about when you started your activist career, and was there an inciting incident for you?
2: I was five years old when Malcolm X was assassinated. And, and again, growing up in Texas, I, I never knew him. I never met him. i gone on to meet family members and even bring his widow, Betty Shabazz, but uh, I had occasion to bring her to my hometown, met my family, uh, spoke at the local university that my mother and father desegregated in 1956. They were the first Blacks to break the color line that opened that institution of higher education. I had met her in Harlem because I lived most of the 80s in New York, seeking out to be more involved And got to meet many people who knew and were close with and comrades of Malcolm, like Yuri Kochiyama. I sat in Yuri's apartment where, you know, she would have Malcolm over. You know, she told me, you're sitting where Malcolm sat cross-legged in her Harlem Projects apartment. This is the woman who cradles Malcolm's head when he shot in the Audubon Ballroom on February 21, 1965. I sought and learned from all of these people And what I most learned is that it's resilience that wins a righteous struggle. If you fight in a way that you flame out and you get assassinated and you get knocked out of commission, that doesn't necessarily win the struggle. What wins the struggle is
0: resilience. You mentioned that your mother broke the the color line. She broke through just only in the 50s. How did that sit with you then or put you on the path of activism to today?
2: As I even said in one of my my books where I I worked to historicize that whole struggle in Texas of breaking the color line in higher education, that it was a story that actually growing up and in the family, they really kind of held it back. They didn't raise us to say, this is the tradition you come out of. You know, these are the shoulders you stand on. It was more... Integration, integration, integration. Go as far as you can. We don't want to tell you all of these painful events in our own lives. We just want you to go as a blank slate so that you can get along with the new generation and through your abilities and through your skills, your tenacity, all the good in you that you can make a way for yourself in the world, taking advantage of all the new opportunities that are opening up because of the changes that are happening racially and politically. And I look back on it, and when I was doing my research for my, what was my master's thesis, then my dissertation, and then one of my earlier books, I kind of had to confront that, that denial of of, the, of that personal history. But a lot of my generation came up without the full armor of our stories. And so that's where I committed myself to becoming a historian, becoming a teacher, to share those stories,
0: You're listening to the Monday Conversation on And Another Thing with our guest, Amilcar Shabazz. A founding member of the Amherst Reparations Council, he shares his family's experience of breaking color barriers in Texas, his journey to activism through Harlem and Harvard, and how he landed here, teaching what he has learned to students.
2: One of the background stories, another one that they would hardly speak about in my family, but I knew that in 1943, there had been a terrible race riot in my hometown of Beaumont. The whites just walked off the job, walked off the picket line. They said they had heard of a, a, a white woman that said she'd been raped by a black man. And they just had to act out. And they tried to get the guy out of the, find out if the sheriff had arrested anybody and they were going to lynch him in the street. And that thwarted and making that happen. They then marched through the black area of town, burning buildings, uh, attacking people, And then one day I read a poem by by Langston Hughes when I'm in college about from Beaumont to Detroit, 1943. And he makes this whole thing about how long we got to fight both Hitler and Jim Crow. And I said, oh, my God, Beaumont, Beaumont, Texas. He's talking about the story that I thought was just a myth. And that, again, starts me into digging. So the journey of race comes in by my learning and my discovering. So I get involved with trying to get the University of Texas to take its money out of companies doing business in South Africa. The University of Texas's endowment, second only to Harvard at that time, was invested in all these different kinds of businesses. We wanted them to take it out of the businesses that were propping up the South African regime. We brought in a, a comrade that had gone to Zimbabwe. Well, his name was Ahmed Obafemi and he was very involved in uh, there in New York City with the the Black Panther Party with the Republic of New Africa with all of these militant groups he told him I wanted to learn more about his own experiences and work in the movement and if there was any role that I could play let me know well he contacted he said well why don't you come up to New York and work with us for a few months and how it helps you in your future organizing and your future work as an activist. Well, six months turned into over six years. Fast forward to late 80s. I'm getting homesick for back down south for the family. People begin saying, you know, you ought to go back, get your degree. And so I went back, get my master's degree at Lamar University, the school that my mother had desegregated and decided that I would write a master's thesis about the desegregation of that school because there was no history. There was no historical memory of it. There was no acknowledgement of the people who made sacrifices to make that happen. I applied for doctoral programs at the University of Houston and graduated in 96. My first job was at the University of Alabama, which is, of course, very faithful history of, of, of higher ed with the challenge of Arthurine Lucy in 56 and then Vivian Malone Jones and James Hood in 63 uh, that finally broke University of Alabama open after George Wallace's stand in the schoolhouse door and then moved from there for a couple of years to Oklahoma State University, where I was the head of an American studies program. You know, I was always pining for what if one day I could work at a actual black studies department? Said, well, be careful what you wish for. I get the call. There was a search for a chair for the uh, Afro-American studies department at UMass. And so in 2007, I became the seventh chair of the W.E.B. Du Bois Department of Afro-American Studies, which is a tenure-granting, standalone department with its own faculty with that offers a B.A. and M.A. and was the second in the country to offer the Ph.D. in Africana Studies. So I was very and continue to be very excited and by the opportunity to come to that very historic department.
0: After the break, Professor Shabazz walks us through his discovery of the history of slavery in Western Massachusetts and explains why he believes now is the time for African-Americans to finally receive reparations in our country. This is And Another Thing. Stay with us.
1: Welcome back to And Another Thing. We continue our Monday conversation with UMass Professor Amilkar Shabazz, a longtime racial justice activist and a member of the new African Heritage Reparation Assembly in Amherst. I'm Maya Schwader.
0: And I'm Derek Kennedy. In 1783, according to UMass Library's research, after 50 years of enslavement, Miss Belinda Sutton petitioned the Commonwealth of Massachusetts in her attempt for reparations and was awarded 15 pounds, or what today would be $20.11, from the estate of her slave master, Isaac Royal Jr., the largest slave owners in Massachusetts at the time. And yes, that Isaac Royal Jr., the man credited with helping establish Harvard Law School. Shabazz continues by discussing the knowledge that he had of the history of slavery in western Massachusetts and how that has helped shape his work for reparations in the area.
2: One of the things I did uh, have an inkling about this area is to know that it's one of the uh, towns in the country that had a college that was the first to admit African Americans to earn a, a bachelor's degree, particularly a man named Edward Jones from South Carolina came up here and a uh, year or so after um, Amherst College opened and became among its first earliest graduates, he's one of the very first five African Americans to earn a college degree. So I use something of the area, but not much integrally about blacks in Western mass, the history going back into the 1600s into slavery times into the 1700s, in the late 1700s, pretty much fading out and uh, blacks are suing for their freedom, those who are still held in slavery. And it just becomes like, okay, this, this is not right. Let's just get out of this thing altogether. It's one of the earliest of the 13 states to just break with the practice of holding human beings in bondage, where it moves beyond being engaged in antiquity into something living is when you're able to see students connect the line of history in the case of Amherst, it incorporated as a town in 1750, 1760, and then follow it on into the 1800s, follow it on to the Civil War with a couple of dozen Black people from here going down to Boston and joining the 54th, joining the 5th Cavalry Division to fight in the Civil War. Very clear, This is not a draft. They're doing it because they understand we can make this a fight for freedom. Soldiers from here are in Galveston to back up General Gordon Granger when he reads out the field order emancipating or or telling the enslaved Africans in Texas, you are here and forevermore free on June 19, 1865. And I'm here with troops to enforce that. There are Amherst troops. There are Amherst black folks As we read this and we're seeing the connections of yesterday, of the past, to right here, right now, we then beg questions like, how is this history acknowledged in the community? You get into that history, you start sharing it with these students, you see where they take it over, and you show them how, ah, you've just made something of value for all time, for others, let's share it.
1: As you're following this trail and all these fights for freedom, the question of reparations comes into the conversation. You recently have been part of the committee to look at reparations in the town of Amherst. Of course, reparations became a very hot topic nationwide after the murder of George Floyd last year. But this is something you've been involved in for decades. Why do you think now is a time when Amherst can properly consider a complex, wide-ranging topic like reparations?
2: I am charged with a, a responsibility of kind of bearing witness to an idea whose time has come. Why now, in the face of climate change, in the face of existential threats of COVID-19 and pandemics, and in the face of watching death after death of Ahmad Arbery to people on death row, to people just being lynched in the streets, the knee on the neck of George Floyd for over eight minutes, there's a certain spirit has been stirred that have folks ready more than they've been over the last 40 years, that I've been an activist and seeing that this part of our truth, the necessity to repair the harm that racism has wrought and continues to wreak on society, that I'm here to bear witness that people are ready now more than ever for a narrative, for a framework, for policy, for action, to make real transformative change that can address these disparities, that can address these inequities, that can address the segregated spaces, that can address, you know, the tiki torch parades and and you will not replace us and Jews will not replace us and can get people to really confront these narratives of hate and of exclusion and of superiority and of supremacy and of, you know, I'm just genetically better than you. Well, you know what? Yeah, you are genetically different. My people's genes have been harmed by what your racism has done to us. It's not something that happened in the 1600s in Amherst or 1700s and is now over. It's something happening right now in 2021. It's a harm that has never been redressed. You've just had a series of legal compromises in terms of enslavement, and some human beings being considered superior and others inferior, and that being codified into law. So, all right, you've changed those laws. But what about the harm created by all those laws and policies and behaviors? What about the harm? You've never done reparations, but the harm and the the effects of the harm are still here right now. So it's not too late, and we can't wait. In 2021, in high blood pressure, in disparities in COVID-19 deaths, in disparities of of respiratory diseases in the Springfield emergency rooms, and that this all ties to a root that we've still not uprooted. What are we going to do about it now? Our people have been waiting for this day.
1: Our Monday conversation today on and another thing is with activist and academic Amilcar Shabazz of Amherst. Reparations are an old and complex idea, and even with the little momentum it's gained recently, Shabazz says it must be taken seriously, not treated as a photo op.
2: It's an important moment, but I also understand it's very fraught because it it operates against a weight that wants to pull us back to a space of indifference. And look for the easy way out, do our virtue signaling, make a nice statement, then let's say, oh, and let let all that then go away now. No, it doesn't work that way, right? We haven't addressed the historical realities. We still live in a town named for Lord Jeffrey Amherst. You know, we still live in a space that has very few to no uh, street names, symbols, place names, historical acknowledgments of the African presence and African contribution and African human story in this space of Western Massachusetts. Something as monumental as the, as the fight against slavery in the 1800s. And we don't even have a research center and something that, that, that educates about the role of, of this work in reshaping life in the world And for African people right here in Western Mass, that's the beauty of where the reparations struggle can give us a real bump.
0: Everything that you just described to us in explaining what reparations are is essentially critical race theory about the history of the African-American in this country. That's a very divided topic right now. How can you teach reparations or explain reparations without also discussing critical race theory? And while proving to some that it actually is a part of American history, that it happened.
2: Race is something we must and have great need to be critical of. And from some of the great critics of of race, whether in law, whether in other aspects of, of society, Public accommodations, healthcare, voting rights—where races has crept in and had and had problematic effects and has problematic effects—the the the police on the beat, the the crimp, the courts, the prison system—where race plays into all of that—is something we obviously must be critical of. And these are very difficult spaces: the schoolhouse, the courtrooms, the ballot boxes—to figure out the right policies and the right way of dealing with the problems in in, in all of those different areas. And you're right. There's there's pushback. There are people that want to stop the reparative justice work before it even begins, or just letting white supremacy continue, letting it roll on. And I get that. And so, you know, the new word of the day is critical race theory. Keep everybody's eye on the prize. White folks, black folks, Asian folks, uh, latinx folks everybody's eye on the prize which is about repairing the relations uh in our society repairing the the uh uh the harms that have been done and and making our world better that's the eye on the prize and and whatever label of the day to try and and attack people pushing for that and critiquing and 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 and, and uh, making the changes um whether on our side now, we're calling it reparations, reparative justice, critical, or, or if we even want to embrace the label of critical race theory, uh, which is nothing, which again, it's just a buzzword uh, as the, as people in the media have used it. But it, it really is this truth-telling work that we are doing, and we have to continue to find the right tone to things, the right creative ways to do that truth-telling work that is not only illuminating, but in a way uplifting and joyful to the human spirit. Because, you know, if it's all about making, if we think that the change is all about making some people feel bad and and, and dividing reality between oppressors and oppressed, yes, that's not going to last very long. That counterforce that I'm talking about is definitely going to push us down and push us away from the work. So we got to find ways to keep the focus, create a sense of, of beloved community and joyfulness in our resistance, joyfulness in our resilience. And that's where we will continue to
0: sustain
2: the momentum that we have.
0: Amilkar Shabazz, Professor of African Studies at UMass. Thank you so much for joining us on And Another Things Monday Conversation. Peace and blessings.
1: Thanks for tuning in today to And Another Thing. I'm Maya Schwader. The conversation does not end here. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at AAT on NEPM.
0: And please visit the And Another Thing page on NEPM.org to catch up on more episodes. I'm Dara Kennedy. Thanks for listening today.